23, Acts 23. Acts 23, we're going to look at 1 through 11 today. I was going to go 1 through 5, and that might be as far as I get, but I hope not. <clears throat> because my sermon probably won't make sense, because I wrote it all the way through. But that's okay. So we're looking at Acts 23, 1 through 11 this morning. So we're crossing over from 22 to 23. Last week we looked at how Paul had been brought by the Roman tribune into the military barracks to be interrogated. Uh, the tribune was determined to find out why the Jews wanted to kill Paul. So he had him strapped to a post or to a stone where he was going to literally whip the truth out of him. He was going to flog the truth out of him. But before the examination could begin, Paul declared his Roman citizenship. And under Roman law, Roman citizens could not be handcuffed, bound up or for any reason. They could not be whipped or any of those things without first being proven guilty in a court of law. And so when, you know, he had been already handcuffed and he was about to be beaten, he said, hey, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And, and that struck fear within the tribune, the Roman tribune, the leader, and in the soldiers. And uh, the next morning... They basically, the tribune contacted the Jewish high council, which is called the Sanhedrin. That's kind of like their supreme court. And he commanded them to gather together uh, uh, that they might be able to interview Paul and assess him to find out why the whole city was against Paul. Why the Jews in the outer courts and the inner courts of the temple were wanting to kill him and shouting for his death and trying to beat him to death. And so uh, that's pretty much... Where we left off, the tribune contacts the Sanhedrin and then he takes Paul without any handcuffs on down to the Hall of Hewn Stone where they met and, and now the proceeding is about to begin and so that's where we pick up today. Let me pray one more time and we'll get to work. Father, thanks for our time. Open our hearts and minds to the truth, Lord. I pray that this wouldn't be just mere storytelling, that this wouldn't be just a, a narrative we know it is a historical narrative. We know it is storytelling in a sense. But, Lord, we, we didn't come down here to have our ears tickled by listening to a story. And there probably are some here today that think it's a fairy tale. And so, Lord, we're, we're looking for truth here. We're looking for instruction. We're looking for admonition. We're looking for exhortation. Big words. We're looking to be changed. We're looking to be sanctified more conformed to the image of Christ. That is the desire of the church. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take the truth that is in this narrative, that is in this storyline, and, and there is truth here, and not just historical telling, but that you would take doctrine, that you would take what is here and apply it to the bride of Christ, that we might be sanctified and beautified for our bridegroom who is coming back, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so change us this morning, Lord. Do not tickle our ears in any way, and you do not aim to do that. May we be humble and receive all that you have for us, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Verse 1, chapter 23, verse 1. If you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, 98% of you, that's good. Let's look at it. It says, and looking intently. Keep in mind, Paul has just been brought and put before the Sanhedrin. He's in the hall of hewn stone. Here it goes. It says, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers... I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So Luke begins his account of what happened here by highlighting something very important, and that is the courage of Paul. Now, Paul had been the day before beaten to a pulp, nearly killed. He'd been imprisoned all night. He'd been handcuffed and shackled and thrown into a dank, nasty, stinky, mold-infested, prisoner-infested Roman jail for the evening. And so... And it's amazing that he begins with this little statement about Paul's courage. You would think that after the last 24 hours, Paul would not be very courageous. And he would be thinking to himself, oh my gosh, now I have to actually go before another court, if you will. Or the one that can really, you know, end my life. Because the Romans can't do anything to me. I'm a Roman citizen. And so now they're bringing me before. You would not think that Paul would have been courageous here, but he highlights his courage. The entire room had eyes on Paul. Every member of the council was literally staring at him. You might say that they were mad-dogging him. The Urban Dictionary says mad-dogging is staring at someone with the intent to cause them bodily harm. To give them the stare down. He's giving them what we call the stink eye. 72 members of this council, and plus anyone else who was in this room, is giving him the stink eye. Is mad-dogging him. They're staring at him like, look at this piece of garbage. 
What's he going to possibly say? We know who this dude is. They were mad-dogging him. They were looking at him in a fixed, hostile manner. They were conveying through their countenance and through their eyes their anger and disdain. And why do they do that? Because they want to intimidate. But Paul wasn't intimidated. It says that he looked at the council intently. He stared right back at them. There's the courage. Oh, you're staring at me? He stares intently. He looks back. He returns the gaze, if you will. And I think some of these guys were probably snarling because they hate Jesus Christ and they hated Paul and everyone who represented Jesus. They knew who Paul was, there's no doubt. And so they might have been snarling at him, barking, hur, hur, hur. who knows. But he looked intently at the council, and I love that. After being beaten, after being thrown in a nasty jail, I don't know about you, man, I would have crawled into that place. I would have pleaded for mercy. I would have done something. I'm, I, I just don't have that kind of fortitude at times. And he just looks right back at them. He looks at them intently. He returns the look. That's fantastic. That is a courageous thing. To stare trouble in the eye. To stare persecution in the eye. Not to cower. Not to turn your head. Not to bow your head. Not to, to, to steer your eyes away. But to look at adversity. To look at persecution. To look at trouble. Right in the face is what he does. Immense courage. And Paul began with his typical salutation to Jews, right? He says, brothers, I don't know about you, but after being treated this way for the last 24 hours, I'm not sure that I would refer to anyone as brother. Hey, brother. Like Paul, yeah, or not Paul, but Bruce back there. He calls everyone brother, even the ladies. Hey, brother, I mean sister. Would you really just say, hey, brothers, I know that you're holding my life in your hand, you know, and, that, and you know this, right? You walk into this gathering, and then you begin by saying, hey, brothers. That's his typical salutation to Jews. He calls them brothers. Despite the rejection and persecution he experienced by his own people, he still referred to them as brothers, not in a spiritual sense, right? Because he understood that the true brotherhood is in Christ and Christ alone. There's no spiritual brotherhood apart from Christ. He thought of them as brothers in a paternal sense through Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And so there was some relationship there by blood, some connection. He called them brothers based on that. Brothers connotes oneness and respect. That connotation there, brothers, the connotation behind it is respect, is a connection. There's a connection between us. There's a oneness factor there, and it has to do with Father Abraham, if you will. And after his salutation, brothers, he began his speech with a statement that was meant to clear him of all wrongdoing. Okay? Obviously, according to the narrative, according to the, Luke's telling of this, Luke was probably there, probably present, I would imagine, or he got it first-hand or second-hand account. He, he, you know, he notices that he begins this speech, and, 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 and like he was the first one afforded, the, he was the guy that was afforded the opportunity to talk at first. I mean, we don't see anything else. We don't see the Sanhedrin blast him with a bunch of questions or ask him anything. It's like Paul comes down and gets before them and he's afforded the opportunity to speak. He, he, he begins the whole thing. Nobody's asking him questions. I've never seen a court start that way, have you? Usually they bring charges and all this. You know, I've been in a court or two. Yeah, I've got an amazing past, let me tell you. Right? Some of you are like, he's unholy. <laughs> yes, he is by nature. Thank you. It's only because of Jesus. But, you know, you don't begin a court by letting the, <laughs> letting the, the you know, the, the guilty party come in and say, hey, by the way, you know, he begins this thing. And after his salutation, he kind of just throws this bombshell of a statement out there that, that is meant to, to just clear him of all wrongdoing. Keep in mind that the Jews from Ephesus had charged Paul with teaching against the people, teaching against the law, and teaching against the temple, right? Back in 2128, that's where this whole mess began. And they demanded his life, right, for doing these things in 2131, back a little bit. 
Now the Sanhedrin was aware of the charges and the attempt on his life. I mean, all of this stuff was connected. This building was near the temple and all of that. Everyone knew what was going on. They knew why Paul was before them. They knew that he was being charged with preaching against the temple and the law and, and the people, you know, the Jewish people. They knew all of this stuff. And yet Paul makes this statement. Yeah. He responds by saying, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. While knowing the charges against him. Let's just break this statement down a little bit so that we can get to the bottom of what he meant. I have lived my life, he says, is an all-inclusive statement. He was referring to the totality of his life, literally from birth to now, to that present moment, pre-conversion and post-conversion. The whole shebang, the whole kit and caboodle, the whole enchilada, his whole life, his entire life. And that's perplexing because there was a time where he persecuted the church and you would think, wait a minute, you didn't have conscience issues then? No, he didn't. It also says, he says, before God, I've lived my life before God. That means in conformity with God's will as revealed in the law. I've been one from the minute that I can remember all the way back to where I was a little sandbagger to now, little ankle biter. I have been one who has lived in accordance with God's law. I have honored God with my life. That's what he's saying. Before God, as like kind of like God is my witness. He has watched me and... And he says, in all good conscience, this means with a self-awareness that resulted from knowledge that his behavior in thought, word, and deed consistently followed the standards of God's laws. And then lastly, he says, up to this day, which literally means consistently up to this point. So let's paraphrase Paul's opening statement, right? There's charges out there, but nobody said anything yet. And this is how he begins, right? paraphrased and I'll try not to use any hyperbole because I, I love to blow stuff up when scripture doesn't really blow it up here I have lived my whole life this is paraphrased I have lived my whole life before God in conformity in honor of his will as revealed in the law my conscience is clear of any wrongdoing or guilt even now as I stand before you that's what he said that's his opening line. You can see how he's intending to clear himself of any wrongdoing. Hey, I've lived before God my whole life. My conscience is clear. Even now. Now we must understand that Paul did not in any way, shape, or form claim to be perfect here. He did not claim to be perfect here. I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. It does not mean that his actions had always been right. There's a difference between always, you know, being without sin and having a clear conscience. There's massive difference between the two things. Paul was a sinner saved by grace like you and I, if that's who you are this morning. He made mistakes like you and I. He persecuted the church. He had a blowout with Barnabas. He spoke evil of a ruler in a way in this text, as we'll see. The idea here is not that he was perfect, but that his conscience was currently clear of any wrongdoing. That's the idea. He didn't have any guilt on his mind. He didn't have any guilt in his conscience. His conscience, which is like that little voice that tells us when we do right or wrong, it wasn't telling him, you're in the wrong. You've screwed up. Paul actually declared his innocence with that statement. You think about this, how can a godly person, okay, one who knows Jesus Christ, one who has the Holy Spirit, how can a person who has the Holy Spirit be both clear of conscience and guilty of breaking God's laws at the same time? I'm going to tell you right now as clearly as I can, that is impossible. It is impossible for one to have the Holy Spirit and to be a consistent, habitual, even a temporary lawbreaker and to have a clear conscience. Because I tell you what, the Holy Spirit pricks that conscience and that conscience is wrong. Happens every time. The Holy Spirit informs our conscience of a violation and convicts us of sin. Keep in mind though, a person can, however, ignore the Holy Spirit and their conscience. But that doesn't mean that they can completely rid themselves of both. It is true that the child of God can wander and go astray. 
But that doesn't mean that their conscience is seared to the point where they can't ever distinguish between good and evil. And do, are we to think that we are more powerful than the Holy Spirit who indwells us? That we can literally kick him out of us? If we could do that, man, we would have lost our salvation a long time ago. I'd have done that on day two. I love Jesus day two. I'm not sure about Jesus. That's my life. And I'd have lost my salvation. I'd have just kicked the Holy Spirit right out of my life. Doesn't mean that I don't grieve him at times. We are not more powerful than the Holy Spirit, and our conscience is a faculty that cannot be completely removed. Yes, we can sear it to a degree. Yes, we can frustrate it. Yes, we can stifle it, but it's still there. We're made in the image of God. We can't remove some of those aspects of our image that he gave us that he apparently has. If Paul knew, here's the point, if Paul knew that he had violated God's law, he would not have claimed to live his life before God in all good conscience. He would have been convicted. He would not have made such a bold statement about himself. And keep in mind, he was not saying, hey, by the way, I'm perfect. I'm Jesus number two. We know that the only perfect person to ever live who obeyed God's law perfectly was Jesus Christ, not Paul. And so he's not talking about his perfection or anything. He's just saying, hey, I've lived my whole life before God and, and my conscience is clear Know this, that living in obedience to God's law produces a good conscience like that of Paul. That's a very practical thing here to take away from this little tidbit. Disobedience to God's law produces a guilty, nagging conscience. Okay? This is true. Another thing Paul did here was that he exposed the Sanhedrin. Somebody in the room was guilty, and we know it wasn't Paul, right? Not just based on the fact that he said, hey, I'm not guilty here in a way, but we've watched him live his life throughout the book of Acts, and we've watched him, you know, we've watched him struggle with things and all that, but we've watched how he served the Lord and obeyed the Lord and done the things that he was supposed to do. Somebody in the room was guilty, and I'm telling you right now, it was not Paul. It was the Sanhedrin. It was that 72-member, the high court, the supreme court of Israel. They had sought to incriminate an innocent man without any evidence. There was no evidence. Even the day before, those, the mob, the crowd out there could produce no evidence. They were lying and trying to manipulate others into killing Paul prematurely. There was no evidence they could produce. They were just making accusations. And the Sanhedrin here is guided by accusation and many times by false witness. They were trying to nail a guy who was innocent. And this hearing was supposed to be like a grand jury hearing. A grand jury convenes to figure out if laws have been broken and if the case should go to trial. That's all this is. We need to figure out if this guy's done, done something wrong so we can take it to trial. But that's not what the Sanhedrin was trying to do. They wanted to expedite the case, get a verdict, and execute judgment and punishment against Paul as quickly as possible. Pretty much like they had done to Jesus about 20 years earlier. Fix the problem. Get rid of the loudmouth. Get rid of the one who's teaching against the, the, uh, teaching against the people and against the temple and against the law. That's the best way to deal with this type of person here. He can't be reformed. We've got to try him and kill him. It's precisely what they did to Jesus. And the interesting thing is, is that Jesus remained silent during his kangaroo court trial, that midnight escapade ridiculous thing that they put him through, late night thing. He remained quiet. Why? Because he was headed to the cross to purchase his bride to purchase his people, to pay for their sins. And Paul, however, defended himself, and he exposed the real criminals here, the Sanhedrin. The cr criminal element was with them. They were notorious. They were notorious for ramming cases like this through to get a judgment, to get rid of the problem. And that's all they were trying to do here. And Paul was fully aware of it. Look at what happened next in verse 2. This is interesting. It says, and the high priest 
Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Punch him. Now in verse 2, we are introduced to a new high priest. During Jesus' ministry, there were two high priests in office, right? Caiaphas and Annas. I think it was his father-in-law. He wasn't like the literal high priest, but he just kind of decided to take part of that responsibility. And Caiaphas and him were the ones who were active in that role. They were the ones who were behind the trial and death of Jesus. They had been replaced by Ananias. Ananias reigned for 11 to 12 years, beginning in AD 47. He was one of the most cruel, one of the most evil, one of the most corrupt high priests to ever hold that office. He was despicable. According to Josephus, that ancient historian wrote quite extensively about him. He literally stole from the common priests the tithes that should have gone to them, beating anyone, any of them who resisted him. You know, the only way that the priests, the only way that the church, if you will, in that day, and this is prior to Christ, but it's kind of the Jewish church, the only way that those guys ate and had any kind of money for anything was through the offerings. And here this guy had the audacity to just take away that portion that went to the guys who were down in the trenches doing the work. This guy who sits on this special throne and wears these special clothes, and he was robbing from the common priests, those who were actually actively engaged in ministry. This would be like the senior pastor of, of one of our churches taking the salary away from all of the under shepherds and pastors. Despicable. He did not hesitate. Ananias did not hesitate to use violence to further his goals. And, and isn't that just a rub? We're talking about religious leaders here. When we think of religious leaders, we don't typically, th typically think of, you know, violent people. Unless, of course, you're thinking of the Middle East and other religions. Not when we're talking about maybe Judaism, especially Christianity. And one point, at one point, Ananias was temporarily removed from office for allegedly brutalizing the Samaritans. Another people group not far from here. He was brought to Rome and made to give an account before Emperor Claudius. Claudius, through a little bit of a trial, acquitted and restored him to office. This guy was a disaster. This is the guy who's the central figure in the room, the one who's really in charge. He's the one that's about to try Paul. This is interesting, right? Ananias did what no high priest of Israel should ever do, right in this setting here. He called for an act of violence against a person who had yet to be found guilty of committing a crime, didn't he? He commanded those near Paul to punch him in the mouth, strike him in the mouth. Apparently, he didn't appreciate Paul's declaration of his own innocence and pronouncement of the Sanhedrin's guilt. He knew what Paul meant when Paul said, hey, up to this day, I've done nothing. The high priest was supposed to be a poster child for righteousness and lawfulness and godliness and holiness and mercy and benevolence and justice. He should have been known as a fair and just judge a model law-abiding example to the people but Ananias acted like one of the violent thugs from the outer court I liken him to a mob boss hey go get Jimmy two fingers cut off his two fingers you know this guy was a thug and he wasn't even Sicilian he wasn't like a real mafia guy but he sure acts like hey punch that guy in the face What's he thinking? Now look at how Paul responded to the punch in the mouth in verse 3. It says, then Paul said to him, <laughs> so obviously his teeth were probably still there. He could speak. His lips were probably inflating to 300 PSI. It says, then it said, he said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Wow. Boom, look at that exclamation point there. He's serious. This is like ancient cuss out. But this is, this would not, I won't tell you how this would translate in our day and age. He literally nuked him. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. That's translation, you dirtball, you know, or something of that nature. He says, are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Paul 
was outraged by the high priest's lack of obedience to the Mosaic law. Striking someone prior to a guilty verdict was a serious infraction. Definitely for Roman citizens by the Romans, but also according to Jewish law, according to Mosaic law. You could not do this. Oh, this is incredible. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, he says. And here's this model of religion and and purity and holiness acting like a mob boss. And man, let me tell you, that ticked Paul off big time. Paul was filled with what we call righteous indignation. He pronounced a curse on him. That's what God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. This is a curse. This is from Ezekiel 13, 10 through 16, where the prophet Ezekiel referred to the false prophets of his day as whitewashed walls, doomed to fall in the flood of divine judgment. Jesus pronounced a similar curse on the scribes and Pharisees. And Matthew 23, 27, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Calling a person, you know, whitewashed is the same as calling them a hypocrite or a faker. That's the translation. You're whitewashed. That means you're a hypocrite. That means you're faking. You're not doing actually, you're displaying something, but your actions, you know, you you appear to be something, but inside I can tell that's not who you are. The whitewashed person has only the appearance of godliness. On the outside, they appear to be white and clean and godly, but on the inside, they are black and dirty and ungodly. A hypocrite is an actor. That's what the hypocrites from the Greek, they were thought of as, as, they were these actors back in the day. You know, they didn't have direct TV. And so they did plays. And a hypocrite was an actor. Somebody who acted in a play. And he or she played, you know, uh, in, in terms of what we're talking about here, in terms of being an actor, it's like a person who is playing the role of a godly person, Right? That's the idea. It's someone who plays the role of a godly person. But when the scene ends or when church gets out, they return to their ungodly life. They play the role. They act. But in reality, they're not regenerated. They're not a true believer. They just go through the motions. And this is the claim that Paul made against the high priest right here by calling him whitewashed wall. He basically shouted, you hypocrite. You're acting like a religious leader. You're not behaving like one. This is what he said. Now, Paul not only cursed Ananias, he also rebuked him. He said, are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? This was his way of saying, you're judging me according to the law, and yet you break the law by having me punched in the face, punched in the mouth? What kind of high priest are you? Now, Paul's two-hit combo, right? Mike, you know, his little boom, boom, right? Yeah, pow, pow. His little two-hit combo, it basically grabbed the attention of others in the room. What he said, pop, pop, you whitewashed tomb. Who are you to judge me? You're supposed to be acting this way. Pop, pop. Others around went, whoo, whoo. Now look at verse 4. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Would you revile God's high priest? Ananias' associates, perhaps members of the Sanhedrin, scold Paul for insulting Ananias by asserting his dignity as high priest, which is underscored with reference to his appointment by and service for God. Oh, you're speaking against the appointed chosen leader of Israel by God. Revile means to reproach, insult, or abuse. That's the translation. To reproach, insult, or abuse the high priest was also a serious infraction. It was considered blasphemous according to Deuteronomy 17, 8 through 12. 
Paul may have been in serious trouble here for saying what he said. Regardless of the fact that he got decked. And so they corrected him, right? They said, would you revile God's high priest? And look at what he says in verse 5. And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now at first glance, it would appear that Paul claimed ignorance here, right? That he was unaware that the high priest had given the order. Like, I didn't know it was him, my bad. That's kind of what he said. Now, is this true? Is this what he meant by what he said here? Was Paul really unaware of who had given the order and of who he had cursed and rebuked? It's possible that he was unaware of who said this or who gave the order, but I don't think so. And there are a couple of theories or a few theories out there. Some say that Paul couldn't tell who had given the order because there was a distraction, because others were speaking. Where's the evidence in this text of others speaking? You see, that's an extrapolation. That's an extrapolation. It's like, okay, well, maybe he just couldn't tell who shouted out, punch him in the face, because others were talking. We don't see any evidence of anyone else speaking in the text, do we? That's speculative. In fact, Paul appears to be the only one speaking before the order was given, right? Hey, I've lived my life before God. I have a clear conscience. There's no mention of any conversation or commotion here. The text actually implies that Paul was interrupted. You know, he gave his opening statement and he was going to proceed. And then somebody intervened and blammo, he got punched in the mouth. That's what the text seems to show. So this idea of people distracting and not just, somebody said it, I'm not sure who. That just doesn't fly. Some say that Paul did not know that Ananias was the high priest because he had been away for five to six years, right? Paul just came back to Jerusalem after about six years of doing missions work. Now, this theory is probable because during Paul's last visit, Ananias was at Rome appearing before the emperor for his alleged crimes against the Samaritans. At least that's what history seems to say. And so it's possible that he, you know, heard somebody and saw somebody that spoke and he just couldn't put two and two together. He didn't realize that was the high priest because he wasn't familiar with that person. Maybe he was still thinking that, you know, somebody else should have been the high priest or something of that nature. And some say that Paul was speaking ironically or even sarcastically here. As if he said, I said what I said because I wasn't sure about his position because he wasn't acting like a ruler of Israel. I'm sorry for that, and you're correct. We're not supposed to say those kinds of things about our rulers, are we? Now, let me just ask you, which one of those do you think sounds more like Paul? I just didn't know it was him. We're talking about a whiz kid here. This guy was smart. This guy was in tune. This guy knew what was happening there. Talking about distraction here? Uh, I just somebody said it, and I wasn't sure who. Or does it this the one where Paul would say, "Well, you know, uh, the reason why I said that was because I just couldn't recognize him as a high priest. Why? Because he had me punched in the mouth, and that's not what high priests do." Which one seems to fit Paul? Three. That's my theory. One one of my commentaries says, Paul does not recognize him as high priest because he was not acting like a ruler of God's people who deserves to be spoken of with respect. This means that far from an apology for a mistake, Paul's statement is another prophetic criticism of the high priest whose behavior makes him unrecognizable. That's an amazing insight. What appears to be a, ooh, I didn't realize it. I was ignorant of that. I'm sorry. And you're right. It says over here that we're not supposed to do this. What a, that's the first, our first glance. That's how it first appears to be. But in light of what's happening here, I think very well that it could be Paul. I don't know if he was being sarcastic, but just speaking ironically. I'm sorry. I, I mean, how do you miss this guy? Do you realize that the high priest looked like Ronald McDonald up there? He had stuff all over him. He had an ephod with, with precious stones all over him and a special hat. He sat in the middle in the highest seat. And you're, you're mean to tell me that you couldn't tell that it was him that said this? Nobody else is speaking. You're speaking. You get interrupted. You get punched in the face. You didn't know where that voice came from? He knew exactly where it came from. This person stuck out like a sore thumb. You know, it's like those little Waldo things. 
He's hard to find at first, but once you find him, he sticks out like a sore thumb. You got all this gray, and then all of a sudden you got this buffoon in striped colors. And you're like, there's Waldo. And then pretty soon, that's all you see is Waldo. The high priest was the Waldo in this setting. If any of us were in that room during this, we would be, and because we're Gentiles, we don't know diddly squat, we would elbow somebody and say, who's that dude? Oh, that's the high priest. Because he would stuck out with his jewels and all this stuff. Now this theory, the one that, that, that I like, the irony and sarcasm, seems to be further supported by how Paul recognized the incompetency of the court. You see, he was able to discern that this court, I was just punched in the face I was ordered to be punched by the high priest. How on earth is this court going to be competent enough to try me? They don't even obey God's law. He was able to discern this very quickly. He now knows that the high priest is a godless fraud and that he will not be able to receive a fair trial from the Sanhedrin. He realizes this and that he realizes that he's got to get out of there. And so he comes up with an exit strategy. He comes up with a plan to create havoc to get him removed. He knows exactly what he's doing. As I said, this guy's no dummy. We've been tracking him for two two years now. We've been studying this guy. He's smart. Look at verse 6. Here's his strategy. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with, with, listen to this. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Paul perceived that the Sanhedrin, this body of leaders, was made up of two groups of religious leaders. He could tell just by how they were dressed, by how they carried themselves. They looked differently. He could tell that there were one part in there, Pharisees, that's one particular type of leader. And he could tell that there were Sadducees, that's another type of leader. And his strategy was, his exit strategy, his, his atomic bomb here was to drop a theological question in the midst of two groups, which he knew would create havoc because they had a disagreement on this idea. The Pharisees believed in the supernatural, right? They believed in angels and, and, and demons and visions and miracles and resurrection. They were the theological conservatives of their day, if you will. The Sadducees rejected the supernatural. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in demons, visions, miracles, resurrection. They didn't believe that people even have a spirit. They were the theological liberals of their day because typically conservatives affirm all that God's word says and liberals like to pick and choose. And they don't like this idea of supernatural. They reject the whole creation account and all of that stuff. They just rewrite it. Paul claimed that the real reason why he was on trial was because he was a Pharisee who believed in the resurrection. This is his point. Look, I, he's not, it's not like he's really siding with the Pharisees, but he just realizes that there is such a strong emotional difference in, in, in theology between these two groups. He basically says, I, I'm like the Pharisees, and the real reason why I'm on trial here is because I, I believe in resurrection. I believe in the supernatural. And this was totally, totally true to a degree. He was on trial because he believed in resurrection, wasn't he? He was a Pharisee who believed in the resurrection and had been uh, incarcerated for preaching the gospel, which is about the risen Lord Jesus Christ. There's a connection here. At the, if you boil all of this down, he is on trial because he preached Jesus who is resurrected. And so this is true. He's being true here. I am on trial. He's not lying. He's not using hyperbole. He's being a little manipulative. Paul knew that this claim, his claim would immediately divide the room into two theological camps. He knew that they would begin to argue and debate each other. Paul was literally working to divide and conquer right here. This is great. Look at 7 and 8. And when he had said this, a dissension, woohoo, a dissension had arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, right? Mission accomplished. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Paul's plan was working. A dissension arose between both parties. The Sadducees began to argue against the supernatural, and the Pharisees began to argue for the supernatural. 
And you must understand that this debate between these two camps had been going since these two camps came into existence about 400 years earlier than this. They've been arguing about these things for that long. And as a Pharisee, Paul had probably debated because right before he got converted to Christ, he was a Pharisee and did all the things that Pharisees did. And he had probably debated the Sadducees on this subject before. He knew how vociferous they could be. His hope was that this, he dropped this bomb, they'd start arguing about which side is right and wrong and all that, and that it would escalate to the point that both parties would forget about why they were there in the first place. And that Paul would just be sitting there just tapping his thing going, wow, this is great. Look at them, they're fighting on this. They don't even, they just forgot about me. I might as well just bounce. This is, that's what he's trying to do here. His wish was coming true. Look at verse 9. Then a great clamor arose. Ooh, level 2. A great clamor arose. And some of the scribes of the Pharisees, of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? I love this. The debate intensified, right? Luke referred to it as a great clamor. The voices were no longer distinguishable or intelligible. Both groups were shouting, oh, we believe in resurrection. We reject it. There's all this mud and noise. You know, when a whole bunch of people just start talking at the same time, it just turns into mud. It's kind of like when you paint on a canvas. You add too much paint, it all goes brown. There was noise in the room. You couldn't distinguish what was going on here. And the scribes were the legal representatives of the Pharisees. But in a strange twist, they became the legal representatives for Paul. They're there to have Paul killed, and now they're defending him. This is amazing. They literally became his legal counsel, his attorneys, his public defenders. This is absolutely incredible. He says one thing, the room explodes, and all of a sudden the lawyers go to his side. We find nothing wrong with this man. He's a good guy. I've known him for years. You don't know him. Yes, I do. They proposed, what if? Hold on, guys. Quiet down. We got to get serious here. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And they had no idea how accurate their question was. They posited this like, what if he really did talk to an angel? Paul had experienced encounters with supernatural beings, right? On the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus came and spoke with him. And during his mission trips, the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit visited him again and again and again. This is crazy. They have no idea that if he'd ever really been visited by an angel, or had a conversation with one. They just did not know how true their words were. Paul had an encounter with supernatural being, the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit. They were true. And the scribe's defense of Paul was literally the straw that broke the camel's back. Look at 10. Oh, this is amazing. Man, I just wish that there were times where I could have used this kind of discernment and insight and wit. Right? You know, just the right words. You know, you, after you have this experience with somebody, you walk away going, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an idiot. I could have done this. I could have done that. I could have said this. I could have thrown a shoe at him. <laughs> and Paul just had this discernment. I mean, he was, you know what Paul's thing was? He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the scripture says they will not be able to contend against you, those who have the spirit. He is making a mockery of this court. He's at the Supreme Court. They make, our Supreme Court justices, half of them make a mockery of themselves. They don't need anyone to go in there and do it. Some of them just are clueless. And this guy's in front of the Supreme Court. He's got, we're, we're, we're about to have a riot here. Listen to this, verse 10. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, whoo, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Oh, my goodness. The two groups 
reached level 10 Mortal Kombat. Finish him. This is Mortal Kombat now. The room erupted in violence. The Sadducees lunged at Paul and tried to seize him. The Pharisees fought back with strikes and kicks and pushing. Total mayhem, total chaos now in this court. Paul became the rope in a tug of war between these two groups. He's our guy. No, we got to kill him. They're just going to tear him to pieces. The tribune was watching, and he knew that he had to protect Paul. Why? Because Paul was a what? Roman citizen. Fearing that Paul was about to be torn in pieces, he commanded his soldiers to go down to the witness box and remove Paul. And it says there, this is amazing, look at the detail. It says that they had to remove Paul by what? F-O-R-C-E. By force. They had to literally beat a tunnel through the brawl just to get to him. Sadducees were flying. Pharisees were flying. Bodies hit the floor, right? I mean, they had to, it's like, it's like, you know, and they're like, they have to beat their way through just to get to this guy who's like this. Pharisees got his arm. The Sadducees got his leg. They're trying to pull him apart like a wishbone on Thanksgiving. They had to beat their way through. And you got to know that Roman soldiers were tough. They were battle-hardened. And they carried clubs and short swords. This really would have been like me and a bunch of pastors taking on Mike McDonald and his fighting team, The Last Stand. Can you see me and a bunch of Modesto pastors trying to fight a UFC fighting club? We know who would win, the pastors. (laughs) Because we would preach and pray them to death. Right? We would get slaughtered. These are religious leaders in their fighting. What were they doing going? <laughs> religious leaders don't know how to fight. I know, I'm one. Roman soldiers are like the UFC team coming in. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're just leg locks, ankle bar. You know, they're just killing people. They just carved their way through this like a hot knife through butter. They just beat their way through. And when they beat their way to Paul, they grabbed him, removed him, and took him back to the barracks where he would be safe. Paul's plan worked, didn't it? His case did not make it to trial. The Sanhedrin lost its opportunity to prosecute and terminate him, didn't they? His plan worked. He just knew as he went into that room and when that high priest, who's supposed to be a good godly man, he just knew when he ordered him to be punched, he just knew there is no way I'm going to get a fair trial in this room with these people. And I'm just going to plead for the resurrection. It's what I believe anyways. And he knew that that would divide the room. It created an explosion. It escalated and went 12 alarm. And he was removed by force. He almost got killed again. But he was removed out of that environment where he knew that there's no way I can get a fair trial. I've got ministry to do. There's things that I still need to do. The Lord told me. Paul was undoubtedly physically exhausted by this point. No doubt. No doubt. He had been beaten the day before, probably stoned with rocks, nearly killed. So he went into this court setting exhausted, bruised, bloodied, scraped scratches, exhausted. He goes into this setting in that condition already. A riot breaks out in the Hall of Hewn Stone, and he's tugged on, and he's pulled on, and he's slapped and kicked and spit on and everything else. He's he's just wasted. But physical exhaustion wasn't his only ailment. Okay? There's no doubt he was exhausted physically. He was beaten and all that. But he was also experiencing more than that. Look at our last verse, verse 11. And this is where we see that. Following night, the Lord 
stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul was also torn up in his heart and in his spirit. He was beaten physically, emotionally, and spiritually. He was worn out. On the following night, as he sat in his prison cell, all alone, physically battered, discouraged, and uncertain about his future. That's what he did. He just sat in that cell that night just thinking, gosh, look at me. I'm a mess. What's to become of me? He may have even prayed or recited a psalm or two, right, that night, because those are the things you go to when life just turns in on you. I'd like to think that he turned to, or at least recited, because he was a Pharisee, he had probably the Old Testament, which was what they studied, memorized. I'd like to think that he recited Psalm 143, the one we read earlier. It would have been perfect for his situation, right? For the enemy has pursued my soul, and he has crushed my life to the ground. Sound like his experience? Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. Was he not surrounded by enemies? We don't know if Paul prayed or recited any psalms, but we do know that while he was suffering that night, the Lord appeared to him. It says, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so must you, so must testify also in Rome. So you must also testify about me in Rome, is what it says. Right there, man, just look at that. Take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Those are the perfect words for Paul in that moment. Jesus did three things for Paul right there. And this will be our application. This will be our takeaway. This will be the big idea for us. Okay? Firstly, Jesus consoled Paul. Take courage. Consoled him. God graciously consoles and comforts his downcast servants, so much so that the scriptures call him the God of all comfort. 2 Corinthians 1 3. First thing Jesus says to him, he appears to him and he says, Take courage. That's a consoling statement, that's a comforting statement. Do you need to be consoled and comforted by the Lord this morning? As life beat you up, as the world beat you up, have you beat yourself up? Are you tired and weary this morning? Are you exhausted? Are you sick? Are you broke? You need to realize that when we preach the word of God like this, that means that Jesus is with us. He's here. He's in our presence right now. And if that's you, you're weary, you're tired, you're beaten, you're hurting, you're sick, he's here, and he says to you, take courage. Take courage. He's here with us just as he was with Paul. Take courage. Jesus also affirmed Paul. You have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. Jesus let Paul know that he had successfully completed the task that he had given him in that city. And you know what? Jesus knows what we've been doing. 
He sees our service. He sees our good deeds. He sees how we witness. He sees how we make disciples. He sees how we sanctify our spouses. He sees how we train our children. And he affirms our faithful efforts in those things. You can go and read the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Six of them begin with the Lord Jesus affirming the good and righteous things those churches had been doing. Look for yourself. See, you need to know that Jesus, if you're a child of God and you've been serving him and you've been gutting it out and you've been patient with whatever it is, you've been working the ministry of the gospel in your life, in the life of others, that you've been trying to change your children, sanctify and, and uh, disciple your children, that you've been you know, trying to be a witness at work in a difficult environment, whatever it is that you've been doing in service to him, you need to know he's here and he says, you've been doing what you're supposed to do. You see, he affirmed Paul's ministry in Jerusalem and he affirms our ministry in Modesto, in Keys, in Riverbank, in Turlock, in Oakdale, in Ripon, That's the biggest encouragement for me because sometimes I feel like my efforts are in vain because I can't seem, you know, I read and I study and I, and I pray and I'm working on my own sanctification and I seem, I seem to be on Tuesday, yeah, there's some improvement, but by Wednesday, I'm the same numbskull that I was on Monday. And what he's saying is, I see the work that you are doing. I see how you are engaging my means of grace, Phil. And dang it, I'm proud of you. I see what you're doing at the church and how you're, you know, how you're trying to love people and you're doing the best that you can and you're gutting it out and some of them are responsive and some of them don't care or whatever, but I see what you're doing, Phil. Keep going. Because if it were up to me, I'd be done. Do you ever feel like that? I just can't get ahead. I just can't make progress. I just can't. My kids are unruly. They're crazy. They're like Assassin's Creed. You know? And you need to know that Jesus knows what you're doing. And he affirms our efforts. Any good and righteous thing that we do to advance the kingdom of God, he rejoices over those things. And yeah, there's things that grieve him that we do. There's great comfort in his affirmation of what Paul was doing because I take that for myself and I don't look at it like you've been successful, Phil. This is a long journey but I, I, just, I just need to know at times that the Lord knows what I'm doing because it doesn't feel like things are changing sometimes. You may be thinking of your kids and you've, you've done all you can do and you, you just keep trying to disciple them and love them and encourage them and they're just nuts. Jesus knows. Thirdly, Jesus gave Paul hope. So you must testify also in Rome. Hope came in the promise that Paul would not lose his life in Jerusalem and that his desire to go to Rome to preach the gospel would be Granted, this was Jesus' way of saying to Paul, you ain't going to die in Jerusalem. Those 72 guys over there, it doesn't matter what they say or do. It doesn't matter what the Romans here do. You're going to go to Rome and proclaim the gospel. Hope welled up in Paul. He was encouraged he was affirmed and then he was given hope in that he would leave that he had done the right thing in Jerusalem but that he would leave there and go to the next place of ministry Jesus gives us hope 
through his promises to us, doesn't he? He promised Paul you'll go to Rome and he promised us that he would never leave us or forsake us. He promised us that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God which is in him. He promised that God will provide for us, right? He provides for the birds of the air. How much more are you worth? How much more will he provide for you? He promised that the Holy Spirit will complete the work he began in us, right? He will bring our sanctification to glorification. One day we will be like Christ, much more than we are now. Go back and read Psalm 23. It speaks of the Lord's ministry to us. It too will give you hope. He gave him hope. And he gives us hope. We have the hope of the resurrection. We have the hope of eternal life. We have the hope of an inheritance in heaven. We have the hope of the eternal presence of the Lord Jesus. How many more promises must he give us till we realize that he's got us completely covered right where we're at in the midst of it all? If you're a Christian, take courage. Be affirmed. Leave this place filled with hope. Keep moving forward. Keep fighting the good fight. Don't give up. That was one of Paul's encouragements to the churches that he went back and revisited, right? He planted all these churches and he would go back and he would say basically if we boil it down, don't give up. Keep moving forward. You're a Christian. Take courage. Be affirmed in your efforts, what you've been doing. And know that the Lord is in control and that he's got us right where he wants us and that he's at work, that he's got promises for us that will never fail, that we can have hope in him. And if you're not a Christian, call upon the Lord Jesus for mercy. Repent of your sin and put your faith in him and in him alone. He's the only way, the only truth, the only life. Surrender to him at this very moment. He is, he is, he is mighty to save. He is mighty to save. May he begin to console and comfort and affirm you as a child of God and give you hope. Amen? I hope you've been encouraged by the word. It's, I mean, what, a, what, a, what an amazing gift this is. This is God's word, the God of the universe, the God who created all things, uh, the infinite, transcendent God who we could really not get our minds around at all, and yet he's spoken to us in baby talk. And he just speaks right to us here. That's just amazing. What a gift. What a blessing. That's what your Bible is. Well, as we transition into uh, communion, let's, let's go into it with a sober mind. Let's go into it and confess any sin that we might have. That'd be the first thing. And then secondly, let's, let's remember the work of Jesus. If it weren't for the work of Jesus here, Paul would have no work. He is the resurrected Savior of the world. Let's remember what he did. Let's remember how he died on the cross and bled for us and 
paid for our sin debt. Let's remember how he rose from the grave and conquered sin, death, Satan, and hell. Fixed a promise of resurrection for us. Just go into this thing, confessing and remembering what he did. And just giving ourselves over to him. Just surrendering our hearts over to him this morning. And may, just, may you be encouraged and affirmed. And may hope just well up inside of you. Just during communion, just have that time with the Lord. And then you got to remember, because this is my last word to you right now. When you leave this place, be ready to give an account for why you have hope. And that's Jesus. He's your only hope. He's my only hope. Let's go out and proclaim that. Let's go out and proclaim his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his joy. Amen? Father, thank you for our time together through the word and thank you for the encouragement that you've given us, for the affirmation that you've given to many of us. And to hope. We have an amazing hope in Christ. May we confess our sin during this time. Remember the work of Jesus. And surrender ourselves to him and to his cause. Equip us and prepare us to go out and to witness to the hope that we have. In the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is our only hope. It is our only true joy. Be with us now as we continue to worship you in communion. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Help yourselves. This is for believers. If you have yet to give your heart to Christ, just sit out.